We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Well, the NFL football season is underway, even as regular Major League Baseball season enters its final weeks. We routinely cheer professional athletes who visibly go for broke in pursuit of a win. But there is another less recognized side to the notion of athletes going for broke, as Lee Cowan will report in our cover story. It's an athlete's dream making it to the big leagues and making the big bucks. But handling a ball and handling finances are two very different things. My mistakes were just not saying no and just spinning, 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 you know. And before you know it, you in debt. Athletes winning games but losing money ahead on Sunday morning. Sabado Gigante is a Spanish-language TV phenomenon that has entertained audiences for decades, both in Latin America and here in the United States. This morning, Mo Rocca will show us. Are you one of the millions who tune in Saturday nights to the wacky, zany, outrageous spectacle that is Sabado Gigante? 
We'll take you behind the scenes of the world's longest-running variety show to meet the maestro of the badness, Don Francisco. Honduras. Peru. Peru. Cubana. Más tarde en Mañana de Domingo. Later on Sunday morning. Yiddish 101. That's an immersion course in a centuries-old language that's experiencing quite a rebirth these days. Richard Schlesinger will take us to the head of the class. To paraphrase the old ad for rye bread, you don't have to be Jewish to love and to learn Yiddish. It's being taught in lots of new places to lots of new people. So when you told people that you were taking Yiddish, um, what sort of reaction did you get? What? What's Yiddish? Later on Sunday morning, the comeback of Yiddish. Your bubby will quell. Jan Crawford has a round of questions and answers with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Steve Hartman visits a genuine sweet spot of a candy store. Ahead. That's called the rule of law. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. But first, winners on the field. I lost everything. Losers at the bank. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. On this first Sunday of the NFL season, we can expect to see this year's rookies going for broke on the field. Problem is, many of these players run the risk of going broke for real once their playing days are over. Our cover story is reported now by Lee Cowan. With the first pick in the 2015 NFL Draft, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers select Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston, the NFL's number one overall draft pick this year, is a well-toned walking investment. The former Florida State quarterback signed with the Tampa Bay Bucks for a cool $25 million, making him a pretty wealthy man at the age of just 21. His skills are undeniable. And yet, even the greats in this game know that skills fade. But many young athletes don't think the money ever will. In reality, when I had all that money, money destroyed everything around me that I love. Keith McCants, once a fierce defensive player, was a first-round draft pick out of Alabama back in 1990. His contract? $7.4 million plus one of the largest signing bonuses ever offered to a rookie defender. Hey, I feel great. It's a dream come true. So how old were you when all this was? 20 years old. You are 20 years old, and you became a multimillionaire literally overnight. Overnight. What do you do with that money? I'm like, so I'll tell you what I did with that money. I lost everything. Where did it all go? I gave it away. You gave it away? Mm-hmm. So who did you end up giving money to? Was it friends? Was it family? Was it... Everybody. Everybody? Yeah. Anybody who asked? Anybody who asked. I was, at, I was, I was from Mobile, Alabama. I'm, a, I'm green. I'm gullible. I didn't know no better. He made a string of bad investments. Friends he never knew he had suddenly had a handout. And he says he never really knew how to say no. He's hardly an isolated case. From Mike Tyson to Bernie Kosar to Antoine Walker. There's a long list of pro athletes, once worth tens of millions of dollars, who have filed for bankruptcy. 
But if you take the top 10% of all wage earners in professional sports out, okay, about 90% are in financial distress five years after they retire. That's not an official number. It's just what Ed Butowski has seen, managing pro athletes' money for years. I had someone about three years ago, he called me. He said, I want to come in and talk about my portfolio. And I looked him up and I realized that this man had made about $70 million in his baseball career. He walked in. I saw he had nothing in his hands. And I said, you told me you, were, you, know, you wanted to bring your portfolio for me to look at. He says, I have. I have nothing. The factors contributing to their financial fumbles are numerous. Some live fast, flashy, and foolishly. Their egos inflated better than one of Tom Brady's footballs. But the headlines are also full of those who have been taken advantage of, unscrupulous agents and managers who prey on those who don't know any better which is why Butowski started holding financial boot camps, like this one. You just won't go broke if you listen to this. In addition to basic money management advice, he invites big-name veterans to warn rookies of the dangers wealth can bring. It's scary when young, immature kids get a lot of money into their pocket. That's linebacker Winfred Tubbs, who played with the New Orleans Saints and the San Francisco 49ers. If we all made the money uh, uh, at the age of 30 instead of the age of 21, it, we wouldn't probably be having this conversation. LaTroy Hawkins has been a Major League Baseball pitcher for years. He's now with the Toronto Blue Jays. To get a kid to understand that, you know, the money you're making now, and if you make enough of it, that should last you the rest of your life. Kids don't think like that. Taking it all in was Christian Covington a former defensive tackle at Rice University who was just drafted this year by the Houston Texans. I'm, I want to be wise. I want to be wise when it comes to football. I want to be wise when it comes to my uh, financial decisions, and I want to be wise when it comes to my off-field actions as well. According to league statistics, the average career in the NFL is only a little more than three years. Major League Baseball, about five. The NBA, right in the middle. But planning for that kind of early, early retirement isn't on most rookies' minds. You want to spend your money the way you want to spend your money. Former high school phenom Kenny Anderson was the youngest player in the league when he signed with the New Jersey Nets back in 1991. Over the next 14 seasons, he earned around $60 million. But now, nearly all of that is gone. When he made it, his family felt they made it too. And for Kenny... A sense of obligation kicked in. My, my accountant used to laugh at me sometimes. He's like, you're not even spending your money. Other people spending your money. <laughs> the first thing he bought as a rookie? A house for his mom. Then he started writing checks to his siblings. You know, I'm giving my sisters and my brothers allowance. You know, they're grown people. Allowance, you know what I mean? How much was the allowance? About, you know, uh, three to 5000 a month. His talent and his salary made him quite the catch. And that cost him, too. You know, I got eight kids, you know, two, two divorces. This is my third wife. So a lot of this stuff is just, I did to myself as far as with my money. I mean, some people call it, you know, the lottery effect, that they're, they've won the lottery. Len Middleton teaches at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. It's not rocket science. It's not hard to learn. It's being exposed to it. And then the midterm exam is going to be on the 25th. So he started this business course tailored for future pro athletes, although any student can enroll. They have a choice right now. They're at these crossroads, right? And if they gain this knowledge, 
they're going to be far better off down the road. On a 1.3 million salary, you factor in all these taxes, this is almost 700,000 comes out of the top, right? Let's subtract the hefty savings needed for a retirement that could start in their late 20s, and the pot gets a lot smaller. This is what you have left. I was in shock. Like, I almost walked out the class crying. I was like, what is going on? Wait, what is where this? did it go? Yeah, where did it go? Glenn Robinson took Glenn's course and headed into the NBA with eyes wide open. There's some guys in the league that don't even know the, the pen to own, you know, bank account. They just expect for people that's handling their money to be able to, you know, keep track of that and they trust them. Why don't you think more colleges are doing classes like this? It's a great question. I have no idea. Hockey star Zach Nagelvort isn't taking any chances. After being drafted by the Edmonton Oilers, he too enrolled in the course. Now, after working on his fancy footwork at the gym, he goes home to study good financial footing, too. How big a difference do you think this has made? Come by us in five years and let's see how helpful it really was. Kenny Anderson had the drive to fight back from his financial defeat. Keep your low, keep your head up, keep your head up. He now gives money pointers to young athletes as often as showing off his three pointers. My family's fine, my bills are paid, uh, my house is paid off, I don't have a mortgage, so you know, I'm fine. My name is Keith McCants. I came through this program as a... Um, Keith McCants, though, had a tougher road. He got addicted to painkillers. He was even homeless for a while. His glory days in football, a distant memory. But he found a way to get rich in other ways. Stinking thinking, you ever heard of stinking thinking? You heard of that? He now counsels those struggling with addictions, just like his. I love you. Thank you. God bless. For McCants, that kind of wealth is the kind that really lasts. The love of money is the root of all evil, and the world love money. It makes the world go round. It's what you do with it that defines who you are. Coming up. There's nothing like the face of a kid eating a Hershey bar. How sweet it is. There's nothing like it you'll ever see. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. September 13th, 1857. 158 years ago today. For chocolate lovers, one of the sweetest of dates on the calendar. For that was the day Milton Hershey was born in Derry Township, Pennsylvania. Apprenticed to a candy maker at a young age, Hershey eventually went into business for himself and after a few setbacks created a successful caramel company. Following a visit to a chocolate exhibit at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, Hershey shifted gears and went into chocolate big time. He created the Hershey Bar and the Hershey Kiss, chocolates that have soothed many a sweet tooth over the years. There's nothing like the face of a kid eating a Hershey Bar. For the home of his namesake company, 
Milton Hershey built a namesake town, Hershey, Pennsylvania, featuring everything from low-cost housing for his workers to street lamps in the shape of Hershey Kisses. And that's not all. And this boy is typical of the happy, younger generation which will be ready someday to carry on the good work and keep up the community spirit which makes this town so pleasant a place in which to live. Childless themselves, Hershey and his wife Catherine created a school for orphan boys in 1909 with an initial class of 10. There was a little red fox lived in a wood. Following Catherine's death in 1915, Hershey donated his entire fortune to the school. Milton Hershey died in 1945 at the age of 88. But his chocolates and his town live on today. Put the barcode number, please. Okay? As does the Milton Hershey School, currently enrolling about 2,000 boys and girls. And thanks to the generosity of Milton Hershey, not one of those students has to pay a penny for their schooling. Ahead. So many people are saying, why don't you just step down so President Obama can nominate your replacement? A court date with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Supreme Court justices have lots of experience asking questions. Here asking Justice Stephen Breyer some questions is our correspondent, Jan Crawford. It's open. There's a transparency. The law should be transparent. It's been called the house that Breyer built. And in many ways, this federal courthouse on Boston Harbor reflects the philosophy and mission of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. What was basically important was to make the public understand that this is their building. More than two decades ago, before he became justice, Breyer was the chief judge of the Boston-based Federal Appeals Court and helped lead the design of the $200 million courthouse. Down in the basement, there's a wall engraved with names, not of the court's judges, but of the people who worked on the building. The bricklayers, the carpenters, the everybody. Everybody's here. I'm here too. There I am there. You're just, you're just a worker. I Well, that's true. Ladies and gentlemen, Judge Stephen Breyer. Since Bill Clinton appointed him to the Supreme Court in 1994, Breyer has made it his life's work to give the American people a better understanding of the law in a court that can seem as impenetrable as the imposing stone edifice that houses it. Sometimes they'll get decisions they don't like. Sometimes decisions will affect them. Sometimes the decisions will be wrong. They have to be willing to accept that. We spoke to Breyer at his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just days after the Supreme Court refused to take up the case of Kim Davis, the Kentucky County clerk who has defied the court's decision authorizing same-sex marriage. Under Why? whose authority are his you authority. not issuing lawsuits? That's a deeply divisive issue. People have different deep views. and deeply held religious views. Breyer recalls past cases that drew controversy and those that led to widespread resistance. I do try often to tell people the story of Little Rock. Our President Eisenhower had to send the, the paratroopers in order to take those nine black children and get them in that white school. That's called the rule of law. Good evening. Texas Governor George Bush tonight will assume the mantle and the honor of President-elect.
Not long after joining the court, Breyer strongly disagreed with Bush versus Gore, the decision that decided the 2000 presidential election. I wrote a dissent, and the dissent in that case explained why I thought the majority was wrong on the main issue, which was whether the voting would continue. Despite that, people did follow it. And I'll get that question at universities and I'll tell just what I said to you. And there's a little, so I knew what you're thinking. I said about 20% of you were thinking, too bad. There should have been a few riots. I say, if that's what you think, go turn on the television set and see what happens in countries that make their major disagreements settled in that way. See what happens in places where they settle their disagreements through bullets. Breyer has just written a new book, which argues that while our nation's judicial system remains an example to other democracies, it must also evolve to meet the demands of a rapidly changing world. That puts him at odds with conservative Justice Antonin Scalia. It's a familiar place for Breyer. A liberal, he's the justice most willing to publicly debate Scalia and other justices who adhere to originalism a philosophy focused on the original understanding of the Constitution. Breyer thinks the meaning of the Constitution can change with the times. The contrast was clear earlier this summer, when Breyer said the justices should rethink the constitutionality of the death penalty, a punishment accepted by the Founding Fathers. I mean, Justice Scalia called that a bunch of gobbledygook. Oh. That's, uh, that's his opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the occasional harsh language, the justices generally get along. Scalia is famous for his barbs, but by now, the others take it in stride. He suffers from a disease which is called good writer's disease. When a person is a good writer, as he is, and when he finds a felicitous phrase, he cannot give it up. It's like a good comedian. If you find a good joke and you're a comedian, you just can't give it up. Breyer says the traditions of the court help maintain its collegiality. Before taking their seats on the bench, the justices always shake hands. After oral arguments, they gather in a private conference to discuss the cases and cast initial votes. The two rules are nobody speaks twice till everybody speaks once. At the conference. Not written, correct. And the second is tomorrow is another day. You and I might have been absolutely at loggerheads. In case A, the fact that we were at loggerheads has nothing to do with case B, but unrelated legally. Uh, we could be absolute allies. To be sure, the nine all have different styles. And it may not surprise you to hear Breyer, the former professor at Harvard Law School, say he's a talker. You do your best thinking by kind of talking things out. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? Is that how you Probably were raised? teaching. For your, what about your family? I mean. My family, this is, this is my father's watch. It says, Irving Breyer, legal advisor, San Francisco Unified School District, 1933 to 1973. So I grew up in a family focused on the public schools of San Francisco. Do you wear the watch every day? Yeah. So what would your parents think of you being on the Supreme Court? They would be very pleased. Why? Why? Because it suggests that they raised me in a way that I contributed and it worked.
What my father used to say, which is true, is the best way to succeed is do your job. <laughs> you know, he says, you do your job as best you can. Pay attention to other people, but do, do, do your job as best you can. That was his second most important advice. So what was the first? <laughs> Stay on the payroll. <laughs> <laughs> After 21 years on the court, Breyer, who is 77, shows few signs of slowing down. In the summers, when the court is on recess, he works from home. His office is full of old books and a few gently used toys. Whose dollhouse is this? That's Angela's, my granddaughter. <laughs> we saw this with Justice Ginsburg. So many people are saying, why don't you just step down so President Obama can nominate your replacement? But justices don't really think that way, do they? It's not really our job. Your job is to treat administrations not as political entities that you favor some politician or you disfavor another politician. You try that for 21 years, and then you see that whatever instincts you might have had coming to the bench for one political or the other political uh, side diminish. What happens to you? You get absorbed in this. You get absorbed, you take it very seriously. You can't let up. Especially when he sees the stakes as nothing less than the future of our democracy. It requires education. It requires my generation and yours passing on to our children and grandchildren what it's like to live in such a country. And does it work perfectly? Of course not. Of course not. When the thing doesn't work perfectly, you keep working at it. Still to come, Sabado Gigante. Gigantic Saturday on Sunday morning. And later, Was macht ihr alle? Crash Course in Yiddish. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Es mañana de domingo en CBS. Aquí otra vez es Carlos Osgood. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's our Moraca whose subject this morning is Sabado Gigante, a Spanish-language TV show that's enjoyed an audience of millions for decades now. If you like acrobats, animal acts, beautiful dancing girls, Zumba exhibitions, game show prizes, talk show tears, and, well, pretty much anything else under the sun, Sabado Gigante is the show for you. It's a variety show on steroids. Sabado Gigante, Spanish for Gigantic Saturday, airs every Saturday night for three hours and is watched by millions of people in the U.S. and in 40 countries around the world. Is this your first time coming to a taping? No, this is third time. This is my first time. Yeah. Fans wait for hours in the Miami, Florida heat to be in the audience of this legendary broadcast. How far did you drive to come to the show today? About four hours. So you're big fans of the show. Yeah, we've been watching it since we were in diapers. Right. <laughs> and the main reason for its gigante success? It's all about Don Francisco. Don Francisco, the impresario, pitchman, and ringleader of the Sabado Circus. He's been hosting the show for 53 years. That's a world record. 
all that time, he's missed only one Saturday when his mother died in 1974. There's never even been a rerun. Who taught you to work so hard? Maybe my father. Yeah? Don Francisco's real name is Mario Luis Kreutzberger. He's the 74-year-old Chilean-born son of refugees from Germany. They were German Jews, and they fled during the Second World War, during the Holocaust, to Chile. Not because they chose Chile. That was, that was the only option that they had. So what was that like growing up? I was a kid in the middle of the war. Even in my country, in Chile, half of the population they were with the Germans. It was not easy to grow up in an environment like this. To make friends, he'd have to be more like, well, a TV host. I found an opportunity making jokes, uh, doing shows for the school, you know, and uh, I was soon accepted by the majority. But after high school, he was sent by his father, a tailor, to New York City to learn the family trade. I came in 1959, I was 19 years old, and I had only maybe 20 words in English. It wasn't the New York fashions that turned his head, though. It was that newfangled contraption in his hotel room, the television. When I put it on, I was amazed. That was a radio that you was able to see and to listen at the same time. That was my first contact with television. I said to myself, my father is wrong. I'm learning something that is before yesterday. This will be the future. He returned to Chile determined, and in 1962 convinced a reluctant station manager to give him one hour of airtime on a Saturday. They put on the station only for me from 7 to 8. <laughs> then he gave me from 6 to 8. <laughs> Five to eight. Four to eight. Three to eight. Two to eight. One to nine. Eight hours live during 22 years. When did you go to the bathroom? During the commercials. I was fast at that time when I went to the bathroom. In 1986, Univision, the network that airs Sabado Gigante, moved the show's production to Miami, the gateway to Latin America. And the show itself became a gateway to a mass Latin audience for future superstars like Shakira Enrique Iglesias even U.S. presidents, all of them courting an audience that's muy importante. This son of German immigrants may be the most recognizable face in all of Latin America. Just take a walk with Don Francisco through Miami's Bayside Market. Honduras. Honduras. Paraguay. Venezuela. Peru. Peru. Dominican. Dominican. And you'll get a sense of how very far his reach extends. 
You understood what she said? I missed it with last one. And she said, why I'm leaving the program? And I said, I'm getting old. She said, you're yeah, not old. No! That's right. Sabado Gigante is ending its run next Saturday. Over the last few seasons, the show's ratings with younger viewers have fallen precipitously. Still, as this guest found out, it's hard not to get caught up in the excitement of Sabado Gigante. 53 años, más que David Letterman, más que Johnny Carson, más que Jack Parr. Usted es el rey. Others have been called the king of entertainment, but none has matched the reign of Don Francisco. Thank you very much for coming. Eduardo Sullivan, more than Ed Sullivan. Next, end of the road. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week, the loss of three performers who were very much of their time. Dickie Moore was one of Hollywood's earliest child stars. Come on, Stormy. He was a regular in the Our Gang comedies of the early 1930s. At age six, he starred in the first sound movie adaptation of Oliver Twist. Please, sir, I want some more. Perhaps Moore's most memorable movie exploit was planting a kiss on Shirley Temple in the 1942 film Miss Annie Rooney when he was 16 and she was 14. A public relations executive in later years, Moore was married three times, most recently to fellow child star Jane Powell. Dick Dickie Moore was 89. We also learned of the death in Northampton, England, of Judy Kahn. I'm Judy Kahn, your girl on the go. Stand the actress who first came to fame in 1967 on the TV show Laugh-In. An island of wacky humor during the divisive Vietnam War era, Laugh-In put Judy Kahn through a series of slapstick roles. For once, they didn't suck it to me. She made the words, sock it to me, a popular catchphrase, popular enough for a future president to appear on the show to utter them. Sock it to me? Judy Carn left Laugh-In in its third season and descended into a cycle of drug addiction and legal woes. She was 76. Actor Martin Milner died last Sunday near Carlsbad, California. Mike McHugh. A supporting actor for much of his early career, Miller achieved stardom in 1960 on the hit series Route 66, alongside co-star George Maharis, a duo traveling the country in a shiny Corvette, finding adventure along the way. And now it's their case. In 1968, Miller was back on the road again, this time as a Los Angeles police officer with Kent McCord as his sidekick on the series Adam 12. An occasional guest star in later years, he revisited his early success in the 1998 documentary, Route 66, Return to the Road, for which he served as narrator. Martin Milner was 83. 
coming up. The joys of Yiddish. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Yiddish 101 is an introduction to an old language that's attracting new interest, and not just among those who've traditionally spoken it. With Richard Schlesinger, we hear all about it. Deep in the heart of Texas, there's a sound close to the heart of most Bubbies and Zadies. That's Itzik Gottesman, Professor Itzik Gottesman of the University of Texas, teaching Yiddish. Some of his recent students, like Brandon Mond, come from Jewish families, like you'd expect. Do you speak Yiddish to any of your family? Uh, sometimes I'll speak a little bit of Yiddish with my grandfather. You get a lot of grandson points out of that? I already have a lot of grandson points. I could tell. But, um, but you can never have too many. It's true. It's true. But look at some of the other students. Win Chao Win is from a Vietnamese family. So when you told people that you were taking Yiddish, um, what sort of reaction did you get? What? <laughs> Why are you taking Yiddish? I definitely remember telling my family, they were like, What's Yiddish? The brief is uh, Gavin von Zein. I can speak Vietnamese, I can converse in Ch Mandarin, Chinese, and now Yiddish. She enrolled in the Yiddish class because she thought it was time for something new. My best friend is Jewish, so I thought it would be really fascinating to try and take a, a Germanic language because I've only been experienced in um, the Asian languages. Austin, Texas is a world away from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, the center of Yiddish life in the U.S. Here, the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews speak the language daily and have kept it alive. But a lot of people speak a little Yiddish. Who hasn't schlepped to the store or fetched about the traffic? Still, Yiddish almost met Latin's fate, becoming a language spoken only sparingly which would have been a Shonda. But it's being rescued, partly by people like Win Chao Win, and partly by people like Aaron Lansky. Actually, the number of Yiddish speakers in the world is dramatically on the rise. Today, Lansky is the director of the Yiddish Book Center in Massachusetts. But 35 years ago, as a student of Yiddish, he had to find his own books. So he went door to door asking Jewish families for their books that were among the most emotional remaining links to their past. It does get pretty emotional. Yeah. I mean, it always did. It, uh, it's, you still it's feel the emotion? This, yeah, all the time. Right yeah. now I have you know, a little bit of because, up from it. Because, because it's uh, a world, you know. It, it, it was a universe. And it sort of came to an end, at least in one form. And it was an accident of history that we were in the right place at the right time, and it became our responsibility to save it. About 11 million people spoke Yiddish before the Holocaust. The language almost died along with the millions who spoke it. And when Israel was founded, Jewish settlers were encouraged to speak Hebrew instead of Yiddish. 
But Yiddish dodged extinction. The modern world has been good to the ancient language, which has developed over about a thousand years as an offshoot of German. The world's changed. It's a smaller world that's much more aware of its multicultural character. It's much will more willing to embrace diversity. And Lansky's library has grown right along with the interest in Yiddish. At last count, his organization has brought in about one million books. For no apparent reason, my eye was drawn to the, the, the plaque that says that you have Lady Chatterley's lover in uh, Yes, but I haven't Yiddish. read it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was translated into Yiddish. Yes, I imagine it would have been a little stretch on the vocabulary, but they did manage it. So. <laughs> Books are still coming in from all over the world. And the staff here, mostly students, most but not all Jewish, are translating as many as they can. Of course, there are aspects of Yiddish culture that don't necessarily have to be translated to be appreciated. Do you really need the subtitles to enjoy Leo Fuchs in the 1937 film, Ich will sein a border? Before the war, there was a thriving Yiddish film industry, and those films are being restored and preserved by the National Center for Jewish Film. The National Yiddish Theater is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. It's one of the few left, but it's going strong. The language has a melody, the language has a flow to it, and I think people whether or not they understand every word, they understand the Yiddishkeit. They get the feeling that the tom, the taste of, of the Yiddishness in everything we do. Frank London is a member of the Klezmatics, a group that takes its name from the Yiddish word klezmer, a type of music popular with Eastern European Jews. <laughs> And if you need any more evidence of the great Yiddish Renaissance, consider this. The Klezmatics played a concert this year in China. I'm sorry, to China? Yeah, for the first time. Lauren Sklamberg is the lead singer. You're going to sing in Yiddish in China? You bet. Absolutely. <laughs> Unlike Aaron Lansky at the Yiddish Book Center, the Klezmatics didn't set out to help save the language. Do you worry about the future of Yiddish? Uh, I think that right now I, I don't worry about the future of Yiddish. I think it's in good hands. But they don't mind playing a role in its salvation. In a word, it gives them such nachos. <laughs> Hi, Steve Hartman has a sweet story. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This morning, our Steve Hartman has found a sweet spot in every sense of the expression. 
You're about to witness a 76-year tradition. Just about every day since 1939, Ethel Weiss has descended the stairs of her apartment building, walked 25 feet down the sidewalk, and opened up her store next door. Ethel is owner of Irving's, a candy and toy store in Brookline, Massachusetts that she still runs by herself at the age of 101. You could have retired long ago, obviously. Why do you want to keep going there every day? I, I don't want to disappoint people. There's no one to take it over, and I don't want it to fall apart at the seams. Ethel opened Irving's with her husband Irving near the end of the Great Depression. Oh, that's you there, isn't yep. it? Wow. Her first customers were mostly kids from the grade school next door. And today, she's serving their great-grandchildren, who continue to flock to Irving's after the final bell. May I help you? Do you know all their names? Some of them. Are you forgetting I, some? And I always write them down, but uh, then I forget where I wrote it. <laughs> She is 101, and the kids are sensitive to that. For example, Ethel used to use these transactions as a way to help the kids with their math. How much is it? But now, well, I got kind of mixed up. They help her. What do I owe you? Um, no, you don't owe me anything because I didn't give you the dollar yet. Oh, all right. Sweet doesn't begin to describe this candy store. Okay, thank you. She's like a friend to me almost. Really? Yeah, just really welcoming and polite when you come in. Nothing can compare to her in that candy shop. And Ethel says the feeling is mutual. It's a wonderful place to be, and you can see people all the time, and you can wave to them, say hi. <laughs> do you think that store has anything to do with you living to be 101 years old? Yes, because I love the children. What do you got? Go figure. The secret of the Fountain of Youth. Just take that. Thank you. Youth. Here's a quarter gift. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. Get ready to skidoo into stories, because there's a new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue. You skidoo, we can too, inside our storybook with you. Your preschooler <laughs> can wind down wherever you choose. Blue's always ready for a snuggly snooze. Ooh, I think I'm almost ready for a nap now, too. When it's time to settle down, Blue and all her friends are here for your preschooler. <laughs> Listen to Storytime with Josh and Blue wherever you get your podcasts.